Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, today covering the Office of the Keys. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we get going into this episode here today, looking at the Office of the Keys, I first want to give a reference that actually just a few months ago, I had an episode where we talked about similar sorts of things here about why Concord matters for the pastoral office. And it was centered on especially talking about where the authority of the pastoral office comes from and very much a a conversation that centered around the office of the keys. And so I would say, you know, if you're looking for more on this, of course, we're going to get a great catechesis lesson from our catechist pastor Bestel here. But if you're looking for more on this listener, we do have that episode. It was uh, with Dr. Maxwell, who's a professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, had done that episode. And you can find that in the archives at kfeo.org. So just wanted to give that as a reference point. And of course, there's lots of episodes that we've done as a lot of these things come out in the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope and just things all throughout our Lutheran confessions. And so we talk about this on this show quite a lot. And there's a lot of great things that we can say on this. But as far as a kind of simple, basic, if you will, following this series, catechesis lesson on the Office of the Keys. Really looking forward to diving into this today with our excellent catechist, Pastor Bessel. So with that, I'll go ahead and read from the small catechism, the question which comes under the section on confession, which we began last week. And we'll pick up here with the question then, what is the Office of the Keys? And this is again from Luther's small catechism. Answer, The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. And then a connected follow-up question here, where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And that comes from St. John chapter 20, verses 22 through 23. All right, thus far, Luther's small catechism. Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us our catechesis lesson on this question and connected question on where this is written on the office of the keys. You're absolutely right, John, that this is 
it's necessary to sort of take an overview approach when going through catechesis on this, because as with all the other topics we've discussed, so much could be said on this. And so because it is more of an overview and more of a, if you will, an introduction, I'd like to ask the listener why the phrase, the office of the keys, if when Luther cites the passage that he's referring to as sort of the foundational passage in John chapter 20, there's not any mention of keys. What is this office of the keys all about? That's sort of the first question to address is why this particular title, the office of the keys, if the citation of John doesn't mention anything about that. Well, of course, in addition to this, Luther could have pointed to Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, and he probably didn't because of some of the historical reality at the time in terms of the papacy's teachings and understandings about Peter being the first pope and having the the only authority and, and all the authority flowing down from that. Of course, there's another reason that we'll get to in a minute that Luther wisely chooses John 20, but perhaps that was part of it in Matthew 16 there, because Matthew 16, remember, is the passage in which Jesus, uh, upon Peter's confession, Jesus says, I tell you, Simon, son of Jonah, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And then there in Matthew 16, he continues and he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There very much is terminology and imagery of keys. And so the keys that bind in chains, the keys that loose from chains. And that's where we get this title and this understanding of the office of the keys. That same imagery is used in Matthew 18. And that's very helpful in helping us understand that Jesus was not giving the authority just to Peter. In Matthew 18, it's a wider audience. And yet just two chapters after this in Matthew 16, very similar words, almost the same exact words, when he says to his disciples in uh, Matthew 18, verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he goes on, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's a really interesting passage to study a little bit more deeply because it shows that the idea of two or three being gathered together is not just some sort of random get together, but it's sort of the gathering of the church, isn't it? It's the assembly of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here he sort of hints at that authority being certainly to more than just Peter, but also to the other disciples who would be apostles, to the office of the Holy Ministry, and as we'll study as we go through the hour, the authority really to the church, to the church itself. So then when we get to John chapter 20, why does it Luther include John chapter 20 rather than Matthew 16 or Matthew 18 in the instruction here? And I guess we should mention here that we don't know specifically that Luther wrote this or that he included it in his first catechism, but it was certainly included in the catechism by the time he died. Uh, I tend to think, boy, this sounds a lot like Luther's writing. So I always refer to it just as Luther's writings. Uh, so why would he or those who penned this, why would they include John chapter 20? Uh, the answer is because John chapter 20 is present tense, whereas Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 are future tense that he says to Peter in Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth. Matthew 18 still tends to point in that future tense direction, 
and yet there is some present tense in there. But then you get to John 20, and now it's sort of bestowing this reality upon the disciples and therefore upon the first generation of the church. Receive the Holy Spirit, right? This can be given now because Christ has done the work upon the cross. Christ has completed his mission of messianic salvation for all mankind. And so now he starts to pour out the gifts upon the church. And as we've talked about in the episode where we talk more generically about the sacraments, think of how baptism, confession, absolution, the Lord's Supper, they're all instituted right in the hours surrounding or the days surrounding the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And of course, John 20 is the very evening of his resurrection. So that we can rightly say, and and we're not making a stretch here at all, I'm not making a, a stretch of a claim at all, that the very first thing Jesus wants to talk about is, how do we now bring this work of the cross to the people? How do we now bestow the salvation for all mankind upon individuals in the forgiveness of sins? And this is the very first thing he says to his disciples, right? When he says, receive the Holy Spirit, remember, this is the very moment that he makes himself known in the same upper room he was with them just a few days ago to institute the sacrament of the altar. And now here he is on Sunday night, he appears to them, the risen Christ, and the very first thing he wants to say to them is, let's make sure that forgiveness is brought to the nations, right? Receive the Holy Spirit, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. So the actual bestowal of the benefits of the work of the cross are first thing off of Jesus' tongue. He could have spoken about anything else that he wanted to, uh, and yet this is what he chooses first and foremost. So it's a wonderful inclusion here in the Catechism to point to the authority of John chapter 20 as that very present tense institution of the crucified and resurrected Lord in bestowing this authority upon the pastors and more broadly upon the church. So then we get into the explanation here. The office of the keys, now that we've thought about that term and where that term comes from, all right, so what is it? It is the special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth. Just take that first phrase for a few minutes, the word special authority. First of all, that it is authority. It's not just a reminder of forgiveness. It's not just nice, you know, winsome words that God loves you. It is a divine authority. And so it is authority even before God in heaven. As we talked about earlier, and as we studied in the uh, opening questions in this section on confession, that when the pastor forgives me, I should be certain that this is true even before God in heaven. And so here now in the question on the office of the keys, that this is a special authority, and it's special primarily for that reason, that this is happening even before God in heaven. So it's special in that sense that it affects heaven's judgment. Notice it doesn't affect it. Now, we've said before, I believe, that there's a difference between the word affect with an A and effect with an E, which we often know of as effect as being the noun and affect as being the verb. But to effect something is also a verb. And to effect is to bring, if you will, into existence out of nothing, whereas to affect is to impact something that is already present. And so the words of absolution effect the forgiveness of sins. Right? For that sinner who stands before God, even if only visibly before a pastor, 
it effects the forgiveness of sins, brings out of nothingness, if you will. That declaration is a special authority because it's Christ's own word, and we'll get into that in a minute. And so it's an authority that effects, again with an E, it effects heaven's judgment, but it's also special in that it is an authority unlike earthly authority. Earthly authority lords over its subjects. Jesus even says that elsewhere about you know, Christian love and the, the last being first and the first being last. And remember, he says elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, you know that the Gentiles lord authority over each other. And he says, that's not how it's going to be among you, but rather among you, you shall care that the last be first, the first be last. And he goes on well, with that. This authority, as authoritative as it is, even before God in heaven, is an authority to give God's forgiveness and withhold God's forgiveness. And that's it. That's the focus, right? The focus is all about the forgiveness of sins. It's all about eternal life. It's all about spiritual blessing and benefit. It's not an authority to lord over the people decisions about church governance or to hold over you know, the congregation and authority to say, uh, we're going to make the new carpet blue instead of red. You know, Whatever people would argue about and think that maybe the pastor could wrongfully wield authority. But rather, this is an authority that's all about something that is supernatural, beyond the realities known by earth. And yet here we are, not of the world, but in the world, doing the work of God for the world, or, or more appropriately said, I suppose, speaking and declaring the reality of God's work for the world, and by speaking it, actually effecting it. So this is a special authority. And as the phrase goes on, it's a special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth. Think of this, the importance here of establishing the office of the keys is something that Christ himself institutes. Why is that important? Partly because we know just how often people start to doubt it and start to argue about it and think that the pastor is trying to use it to lord authority over the congregation or people uh, sort of spar over, well, who gets to do this? And so it's really important to remember that the one who has this authority is Christ himself. And he has designed the ways in which this authority is going to be bestowed upon his church. In the very same way that we see with the other words of institution for the other sacraments, think on the uh, section in baptism, Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of St. Matthew, right? That's the question, the second question under the first part in baptism. So what is baptism? It is not just plain water, it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Well, where is this written? Christ our Lord, says in the last chapter of St. Matthew. So you get this very definitive explanation of saying, this isn't something the church has made up. This is something that Christ has given to us. In the same way, we'll see when we get to the sacrament of the altar, the reality or the phrase included in Luther's explanation that this was instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Uh, We're not making this up, and this doesn't even come from the church. And it's not even the church's explanation of how it's going to govern itself, but rather this comes from Christ, a heavenly governance for heavenly benefits, and it comes from Christ himself so that we can take great joy again in these words which Christ has given. The authority starts with him. We know that well-known passage in Matthew 28 about going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Well, how does that begin? 
it begins with Christ saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it, there's an interesting side note, or, or a, I guess sort of a deeper nugget of truth to consider here, and that's this word authority in the Greek exousia. It's a delegated power in a designated jurisdiction. If you look through some of the Greek dictionaries, you'll get some sort of a definition that sounds a lot like that, that it's a delegated power in a designated jurisdiction. There are other places where Jesus talks about the fact that the Father has given him all authority. And so in the same way that the Father has sent the Son, so now the Son says to his church, here is how I am going to send you the promised benefit from on high through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And so this authority, this delegated power, comes in a very designated jurisdiction. That's why it's a special authority. It's not just this generic overarching authority. Uh, In the Middle Ages and even to this day, the Roman Catholic Church is always under this sort of general generic authority of the papacy and the church councils and the traditions. And that sort of Lord's authority over everything and every every aspect of life in the Roman Catholic Church. But that's not how Christ speaks of the authority given to his pastors and to his church. It's the authority to bind the impenitent and the authority to forgive the penitent. Think of how he talks about this, uh, or how the, the scriptures talk about this word authority. Matthew chapter 7, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It's an interesting phrase there that Matthew includes in the gospel there, that there is a difference between those who teach as those knowledgeable on a topic, but really not having the authority to carry out or bestow the particular benefits of that topic. And yet Jesus taught as one having authority over, in a sense, God's word, an authority to actually effect the benefits of it in front of the people. And that's the authority that he is now as a Messiah who has completed his mission, and as a loving Savior who simply desires the salvation of all people, he is now bestowing that authority to his church through the office of the Holy Ministry, in the office of the keys, that that forgiveness of sins be given to all people in Christ's name. Uh, Matthew 9, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the passage where he then turns and says to the lame man, rise, take your mat, and go home. He shows that the physical healing is a sign that he has greater powers to do greater healing, the healing and the forgiveness of sins. And so he has this very delegated power in a designated jurisdiction in this way that he gives to the congregation and to its pastor. Matthew chapter 10, when he sends out the disciples on, if you will, a little bit of a vicarage, it says he sent them out, quote, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Same word, and yet notice again the designated jurisdiction, that the disciples couldn't go out and just do whatever they wanted with that authority. It was not an authority in the kingdom of of the left over issues having to do with Caesar and civil affairs, but in the kingdom of the right and yet a true divine authority, uh, delegated power by designation of the call or by the fact that we are being sent by Christ with the call of the congregation. And to that end, too, every Christian, therefore, should want everyone who serves as pastor to be called, to be a called pastor, called by the congregation with the congregation's confidence that this is the one God has called by their own hand to serve them. This is why pastors, I I think it's probably pretty typical, I mean, I do so in my study, that pastors often will have 
not only their certificate of ordination, but what's often the title is the diploma of vocation, or another way to refer to it in shorthand is the call document. So it's one thing to be ordained, but as our confessions say, in Augsburg Confession 5 and 14, they talk about the call that no one should preach and teach without a rightly ordered call. And so every Christian should want for his congregation the benefit of exactly what Christ has promised here, that the authority of heaven comes from the Father to the Son. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Son has, if you will, earned it. He alone has the authority to take the scroll of the book of life and open it, open the seal as we see in the book of Revelation. And now he graciously gives that authority to the church to carry out for the benefit of penitent sinners. And therefore, you hear these words and this theology, even when the pastor speaks on Sunday morning in the rite of confession absolution. What are the words of absolution? I, by virtue of my office, as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command, uh, or you might even say, or you might even think, and by the authority of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Okay, so this is so comforting as a penitent sinner to know that forgiveness is not about me clamoring for it. It's not about me earning God's favor or gaining his attention, but rather Jesus is so mindful of us that from the moment that he first comes before his disciples in his resurrection, he says, here, this is what this is all about now. It's all about the forgiveness of sins. It's all about making that historic reality of the cross an individual reality in the forgiveness of sins. And he gives the apostles that authority. And as he does then, it might be surprising that when we read this definition here, we hear these words again, the special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth. And now that might seem like a surprise, because we might expect it to say that he has given his authority to his apostles and pastors and evangelists. But there's an important distinction again between the Roman understanding and the Lutheran understanding of what the scriptures say. Again, in Rome, in a sense, and this might be an oversimplification, but just for the sake of time, in Rome, in a sense, the clergy is its own class, and the church exists wherever the clergy are presiding. Remember that Luther, as a monk, one of his duties, I believe, was to actually do private masses, and the church exists even where only one clergy is standing before the altar saying the Latin Mass by himself without anyone else in the building, because supposedly the church finds its definition in the clergy. That's the Roman Catholic viewpoint, to oversimplify it. Uh, and yet, that's completely opposite, in many ways, of Lutheran theology, which, of course, is nothing other than to say scriptural truth and scriptural doctrine, Christ's doctrine, that the clergy preside where the church exists and where the church calls the clergy to carry out this authority, these gifts, for the church's benefit. And yet it's the church's authority. Uh, you know, you might even think of a visual here. Sometimes I'll draw the visual up on the board that the only governance in the church is God with a big arrow down to the big circle that is the church. And that's really the only kingdom of the right governance, God caring for, Christ caring for his church. And yet, how does he do so? But he, out of this congregation, not, and I don't mean by that, that separate from this congregation, but from within the church, as sheep of the church, he calls some of the sheep by the congregation's own hand, 
and says, you are going to serve the church and be stewards of and administers of this gospel. So that in that drawing on the big whiteboard, you might have a big circle of the church and within it, completely within it, the small circle, which is those who are called to be the pastors and therefore care for the church. And so you see the great distinction between Roman theology on this and scriptural theology. Rome's theology depends upon the class of the clergy, whereas scriptural theology says, no, really, it's about Christ and his bride. This is the church's authority, that Christ the groom gives all of the wedding presents to his bride, and the bride now, in taking on his name, owns everything that belongs to him, right? Think of any wedding and any marriage in which the wife not only takes on the husband's last name, but therefore also takes on everything that belongs to the husband, even to the point that the scriptures say to the husband and the wife, your body is not your own. Husbands, your body belongs to your wife. Wife, your body belongs to your husband. And so in the same way, the church has all of this authority, and Christ nevertheless gives the church from within her own children, gives the church pastors. So then the question understandably comes up, well, why a pastor? And I think the simple answer here is, can you imagine if everyone had their own unauthoritative opinion of whether someone's sins are to be forgiven according to God's command? Forgiveness doesn't happen by majority vote, but by the Word of God. And so someone has to be responsible, accountable to God for the congregation to wield the congregation's authority in a faithful and orderly manner. So the church calls, the church has a right to judge doctrine. Uh, In fact, not too long ago, got done uh, reading Walther's Church and Ministry with our Board of Elders. We always, at the beginning of our board meetings, we do about a 25-minute theological study, and I'd certainly recommend that for all Board of Elders with their pastors. We just finished Church and Ministry, and, and in that, in the last thesis, Walther writes about and quotes Luther extensively on the fact that the church is the one that judges doctrine. And yet it says, therefore, you have to know your doctrine, right? You can't judge doctrine based on your own whims. This is why it's wonderful to have the listeners that we have, the hearers that we have, for every Christian out there should say, wait a second, I have a responsibility to know our Lutheran confessions, because how can I bind the pastor or expect the pastor to be bound to Lutheran confessions if I myself don't know what they are? And so by all means, dear listener, keep studying the Lutheran confessions, not only for your benefit, but for the whole congregation's benefit. Just as Luther says, and in quoting Jesus in John saying, my sheep hear my voice, they will not listen to strangers, or again uh, in the apostle, test the spirits to know whether they are from God. A Christian can only do that, and a congregation can only do that, and can only be confident in what the pastor is preaching and teaching if the congregation knows the Scriptures and the Book of Concord as those norms by which we, in a sense, keep our blinders correctly on and know that we have good, pure doctrine. And so the congregation has this authority, and yet this pastor is given to wield the congregation's authority in a faithful and orderly manner. And maybe just because we're up against the break here, we'll save this last phrase in this first explanation to answer the question, how does he do it? How does he carry out the congregation's authority in a faithful manner? As you rightly point out there, we are right up on the break, and so we'll take that question up on the other side of the break. But I really like, and just to accent here, the way that you frame this, and it's the way that I like to frame it in my catechesis as well. And I think 
it's one of those things that we Lutherans, when we're being good Lutherans, do so well is we keep Christ at the center of everything, right? And I once met someone who, when it came to the words of the absolution that we use in our liturgy, you know, where I say, as you pointed out, by the command of Christ, someone said, well, you know, how, how is that possible? You know, how can you be sure of that? And it's like, well, because Christ has given this to the church, right? This is his authority. It's his authority that's behind the forgiveness. It's what he's won for us in his resurrection, as you've so helpfully pointed out there, that he gives this even on the night of his resurrection to his disciples there. And uh, with that as our foundation, then that's going to be foundational for what is done by that authority. As we pick that up on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Festel, and I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life, with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And in the first segment of today's episode, we picked up that question under confession, what is the office of the keys? And Pastor Bestel did a great job on centering us on Christ. It is his office, ultimately, given to his church. This is one of those gifts that he gives to his church and carried out through the pastoral office. And you gave us that great foundation of where the authority comes from and so forth. But then we're going to pick up here before we go on to the final question under the section on confession. You gave us that idea there of you know, how does the pastor wield this authority or how does the pastor administer, I might say, this authority on behalf of the congregation in the stead and by the command of Christ. Go ahead and take us away with that there, Pastor Bestel. All right. The answer for that lies, in a sense, in the very explanation that is given, that he has the authority to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, right, to proclaim that forgiveness. How does he do it? Through the actual proclamation of forgiveness, through the actual declaration, I forgive you your sins. As a called and ordained servant of Christ, I forgive you your sins. But also then, as Christ himself is the one who says this, withholding forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. And that's an important inclusion there, that you don't get to just withhold forgiveness as long as the pastor wants. You only withhold forgiveness as long as they do not repent. So notice what the pastor's authority is there. It is to declare that Christ is forgiving. It is to declare that Christ himself is unwilling to forgive the impenitent. We've sort of hinted at this, I think, maybe in past episodes, this notion that we shouldn't just be so quick to always think that as part of our Christian vocation, we just always forgive. There's a difference between not holding vengeance toward an enemy versus just always forgiving. We cannot forgive where Christ does not forgive. And the very fact that Christ includes not just a loosing key, but a binding key 
means that there are times where, out of Christian love and in the divine truth of Christ's doctrine, we must withhold forgiveness. Again, it's not done to be mean, and it's not done arbitrarily. It's done according to God's holy will, in clear accord with God's holy will, for the specific purpose of bringing that individual to repentance, that we might share with that individual Christ's own work of forgiving that individual's sins. So the unrepentant must not be forgiven as a matter of love and truth. Once they repent and they're no longer unrepentant, then they by all means are to be forgiven. But as long as one is rightfully called the unrepentant, then the church must not, as a matter of love and as a matter of truth, must not forgive sins because Christ himself has declared it as such. Once a sinner repents by the work of the Holy Spirit to break that stone heart and bring to repentance, then the repentant need not fear that sins can be retained because it's not a personal opinion of the pastor, right? The pastor does not get to wield it as he wants, but he administers it. And that was a great word choice, Pastor Smith. He administers it as a steward of the mysteries, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. How should one regard us pastors? As bondservants of Christ. Notice, I cannot do what Christ would not have me do. I can only do what Christ would have me do. This, by the way, is, I think, the simplest explanation as to why pastors, in my opinion, would always do well to wear the clerical collar when they are caring for parishioners, not just on Sunday morning. But, you know, I wear my clerical collar every time I'm going to be meeting parishioners in some sort of a pastoral care setting, certainly if it's, you know, a church picnic or whatever, I wear a t-shirt and jeans or whatever. But when a pastor is caring for a member, that member needs to be reminded visually that the pastor is not caring for him with the pastor's own philosophy or as if he's using human philosophy as a psychiatrist of some sort. He's there caring for that parishioner with Christ's authority and with Christ's own efficacious word and work. So I I wear a collar that has both the little tab in front that is a reminder that the voice box of the pastor, yes, the black that I wear throughout, right? I wear a black shirt, black pants, black shoes, black throughout says, do not look at this man. This man is a sinner like every other sinner. And yet the white tab says that which he speaks is the pure Word of God, right? That which comes from his voice box is the pure Word of God. But I also wear as part of my collar, it doesn't just have the tab, but it also has that white trim that goes all the way around the top of the collar. And that's a reminder that the pastor is a bondservant of Christ, that just as a dog has a collar to show that the dog belongs to its owner, so also the pastor belongs to an owner. He's a bondservant of Christ. And as a bondservant of Christ, he's in a sense on a short leash, just as a dog cannot go where the master of the dog will not have the dog go, so also the pastor cannot go where Christ would not have him go. And so when the pastor cares for the parishioner, that parishioner can have every certainty and comfort that the pastor is dealing with him with the church's authority that the church has been given by Christ, that pastor being the steward of those mysteries and those gifts that Christ has freely given to his church. So, for example, I, I use this example sometimes. If a member were to come into my study and we were, going to, we were to wrestle through some of the things that they were wrestling with, or, or if they would come before the altar and kneel before the altar and go through private confession, and the, and the parishioner started to confess, 
I hit a car in the church parking lot three weeks ago and I didn't say anything because I was scared and I just drove off and I never paid for it and I'm sorry and I want forgiveness. And if the pastor's sitting there thinking to himself, wait a second, that was my car. That was my bumper that the person hit. The pastor does not then have the authority to say, no, I'm not going to forgive your sins until you pay for it. That's not the pastor's place in that vocation. The pastor's place is to declare forgiveness because the penitent comes expressing their desire for Christ's forgiveness in that person's desire to do better. So it's not an issue of pastors having their own personal opinion as to when sins should be forgiven. Again, where is this written? John chapter 20. It's important to notice the inclusion of the initial sentence, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives life to the church, and where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. And so the pastor cannot proclaim forgiveness and with it life and salvation without the Holy Spirit's authority. And that authority has been granted him in the laying on of hands. This is why the rite of ordination, the rite of installation is so beneficial for the congregation. And again, I would encourage every hearer out there, encourage all of your fellow members, whenever there's an ordination and installation, go to that service and witness the laying on of hands as not just the church's sign, but a sign from Holy Scripture in 1 Timothy to say, here is how Christ makes known that the church's authority is going to be carried out in a trustworthy fashion through this man. I think what you point out there, and feel free to jump in and comment on this before we actually move on to that question, is actually something that's really important for us to think about for a second. Because I think a lot of times when it comes to the binding and loosing keys we talk about under the office of the keys, forgiving the penitent and withholding forgiveness from the impenitent, I think a lot of times the perception by too many, unfortunately, is that it is the pastor's own personal agenda or the things, the particular hobby horses that he might have, or even maybe sometimes grudges that he has against certain members or things like that. And that's not the case at all. Now, am I not saying that there's not abuses and that there are not some pastors that are unfaithful in this out there? No, obviously. There is sin. It is a sin-broken world, and pastors fall into sin and traps of those things as well. But that does not negate the truth of what Christ gives to the church through this office and that it's not a matter of our own personal agendas. It's not a matter of our hobby horse sins that we like to get worked up about or any of those sorts of things. It is just simply a matter of this is what Christ has given to us, that where there is no repentance, I often teach this as, you know, I'm just confirming the forgiveness that you don't believe in anyway, because if you believed in forgiveness, you would be repentant, right? You would be confessing your sin and coming and seeking forgiveness for this. But where you are not seeking forgiveness and not identifying something as a sin that Scripture has identified as a sin, then I'm just simply confirming that forgiveness that you're not seeking. That's the way that I talk about this. And so I think that's a really important point that you brought that out there and is going to connect into the next question. But do you want to respond to that at all, Pastor Bess? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point that, again, just to reiterate this for folks, there's nothing arbitrary and it's not personal grudges or anything, but rather it's done because with that authority, remember, comes accountability and responsibility. Think of how often the scriptures are talking about the fact that the one whom God has called is accountable to him for whatever happens. Right, So in, in the book of Hebrews, obey your overseers. Why? Because they must give an account for your soul. 
they have to be able to tell God, here's why I forgave the sins and here's why I didn't forgive the sins. Or think of the image where God says to the prophet Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman over the house of Israel. If I give you a word to give to the people and you don't do it, then their blood is on your hands. So a pastor doesn't have a choice. He might want to forgive sins just to get it over with, right? He might want to pretend that this couple is not living together because, man, that would make it so much easier for him in the care of the congregation just to pretend that it wasn't happening. Or conversely, he might really not want to forgive sins because maybe he's got a personal grudge, and yet he knows he is accountable to God in Christ. That I one time had the chance to do the opening devotion for a uh, regional pastor's conference for our district, and I said, that passage in Ezekiel 33, where God says, I've made you watchman over the house of Israel, that is the most terrifying scripture in passage for those of us who are pastors, because this is real. This is something where we're accountable, and yet it's the most comforting for the parishioner to know that the pastor is not his own boss. The pastor doesn't just get to say, well, this is my church, and I'm going to do whatever I want with it as long as the numbers keep growing. The pastor is going to be held to account by God, the scriptures say, and I don't know what that will look like, what that will entail, but it is something that every pastor should hold as the weightiest reality, that the care of the flock does not belong to that pastor. It's entrusted to him. Yeah, that's an excellent passage to cite and one that I run to myself quite a bit as sometimes I'm forced, as you say, to do some very uncomfortable things that I know are going to make people angry because, well, guess what? My parishioners are all related to one another and where I have to do a hard thing and call to repentance and there's not repentance and we have to exercise church discipline and those sorts of things. Well, that sometimes makes it difficult with other family members. And so we wrestle with all of those things, but we have to remember that we are accountable to Christ and ultimately it, it is his office and we administer this on behalf of the, and for the good of the church, as you pointed out so well. So excellent thoughts on all of that, as we keep saying on the show all the time, so much more we could say on that, but uh, we want to definitely continue giving that broad catechesis overview of these things as well. So uh, we want to push forward and this is connected and picked up in this next question. And as you've already hinted at earlier in the first segment, this section on the Office of the Keys wasn't originally included in Luther's small catechism, but was before his death. And so it probably has his approval, if not by his own pen. And you talked about that as well. But And you and I were talking about this over the break as well, off air, that this next question, it just sounds so different than all of the other questions that come up in the small catechism. And so maybe it's not by Luther. I don't know. Uh, not really necessary for today's discussion on this. But I will say this, that even though it's a little bit weird as far as the catechism is written, I think an excellent question for us to ask as we've received this teaching, well, then what do I believe according to these words? Because that's going to what I believe is going to influence how we view these things going on in the church, as uncomfortable as they may be and so forth, as we've just been talking here. So I think this progresses very nicely there. So I'll just read this from the small catechism. Once again, under the section of confession, it's the last question there. What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular, when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, 
as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. Powerful, powerful words there. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us our uh, catechesis on that question. All right, let's take the first line first. I believe that when the called ministers of Christ, keep in mind the significance of the call, both in Scripture and in the confessions. And by the way, that call, remember earlier when we talked about authority, we said it was a very specific delegated authority to a very designated jurisdiction. As one who is called, a pastor is not called to the church in general. Most often he is called to a specific congregation. And therefore, the authority of Pastor Bestel is not the authority to knows my business and what's going on in the sister congregations around me, or to say to Pastor Smith's congregation, hey, you shouldn't be listening to Pastor Smith on this issue. My call is not outside of Calvary Lutheran Church, Elgin, Illinois. And so, you know, in some ways, again, that should be comforting for the parishioner to know that Christ has so uh, has been so mindful of the church that he has even thought about how he is going to have the different individual sheepfolds cared for by one particular shepherd for that generation of time, who is accountable for that sheepfold and, in a sense, no one else, or has authority over no one else. And so when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, though the authority belongs to the church, they call one man, or in some cases maybe multiple men, into their midst to do the work of Christ, which, by the way, is, again, sort of the simplest understanding, just for the sake of time, why is the pastor male? Right? Why do we as confessional Lutherans insist on the pastor being male? Well, so the easiest explanation is because the scriptures say so in the, in the letters to Tim, Timothy and Titus. Uh, of course, Christ chose all male apostles and all, you know, all male prophets, and we could talk about that. But theologically, the easiest thing to point out is that the pastor, in his service for the church, is the visual aid, if you will, of Christ's relationship to his bride. And it would be very difficult for that visual image to be there of groom and bride if the groom was a woman. Uh, now, I know by today's standards, maybe that's you know even thrown up in question by all of the civil discussion going on about male and female and marriage and all of its different definitions, but by scriptural, God-given, created theology that God himself is the author of, Christ is the groom for his church. And that's just the simplest way to teach our children this is why you can take comfort in all-male clergy, is because it's not about men having authority. It's about the promise that Christ cares for his bride, okay? Uh, so interestingly, then, how do called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command? It goes on, in particular, when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation. This goes back to what we were just talking about, that dirty work of excluding the unrepentant is an essential part of a pastor's call. And yet, sadly, how little do we see it in the common church? Not that pastors should go out looking for it, but let's be honest, we're sinners. You know, the congregation is full of sinners, and there are going to be times where we have to exclude the impenitent. And yet, sadly, how tempted are pastors today to just be liked, to not rock the boat with the congregation or with what's going on in society? to only talk about forgiveness, but never about repentance and the desire to do better. It's very tempting for pastors to pretend that they don't know what's going on, as I said earlier, between two people living in sin, or that a simple email follow-up will be sufficient pastoral care, you know, an email that simply says, hey, checking in, how are you doing, that that somehow is to be interpreted as a call to repentance. That's not true. 
That's not true. A pastor has to roll up his sleeves at times and get into that dirty work for the sake of the life of the congregation, to keep that life unadulterated. A pastor is to exclude openly unrepentant, as the small catechism says. And so all Christians should be concerned, for example, about the purity of the altar rail, as we practice, and we'll get into this when we talk about the Lord's Supper, as we're all to be concerned about the purity of doctrine at the altar rail and the purity of Christian life at the altar rail, then if you're concerned about whether someone should be at the table, then you can actually take some confidence, listener, if you see your pastor who's bound by the confessions, if you see him continue to commune that individual, there's a good chance that he's working behind the scenes with that individual and that you can have a calm heart that maybe that individual is getting pastoral care. So, you know, don't be too quick to judge that individuals shouldn't be there. If, if a pastor is communing the individual, that's a good sign. That's a good sign because the pastor has accountability to Christ for whether or not he is binding or loosing sins, not only in the declaration of forgiveness and the absolution, but also even in giving or not giving Holy Communion. So this is part of his work, not only excluding the unrepentant, but certainly absolving those who repent of their sins and want to do better. And I tell you, I think every pastor knows the genuine joy. If we uphold the holiness of the law and make sure that people know what that is and uphold it in their own daily lives and you know their stubborn hearts become broken in the face of their sin, then there is genuine joy. And the angels cry out in heaven over one sinner who repents. Certainly the pastors and the congregation share in that joy as well. Now, this sort of leads to another question with the little time that we have left. How else do pastors deal with us to forgive or retain sins? Well, we've already mentioned the Declaration of Absolution, and I hinted at being the steward of the supper. We'll get to that again in a second. But you've got the preaching of law and gospel. That right there is part of the Declaration of Forgiveness and the retention of forgiveness. Uh, I think I mentioned in, in the previous episode that there's even a time in Lutheran history where the confession of sins would come after the sermon with a retention of sins, that after the absolution came a retention for those who had not repented. Uh, so this was certainly taken seriously in the life of the Church. So the preaching of law and gospel, uh, being the stewards of the mysteries, think about that word. That's a great description. What is a steward? Before they were called flight attendants, we had stewards and stewardesses. And what was the job? The job was to, in a sense, make sure that there was an orderly and proper use of the food and drink in the cabin of the airplane, and that there was a time not to let everyone just come forward all at once and take the food and grab it for themselves. And yet there was also a proper time to make sure that the food of the flight is administered as it should be. And that's exactly the idea of the Lord's Supper, that there is a time to withhold it and say, no, uh, at, at the right time, we will make sure that it is administered correctly. And then when that time comes, the pastor has a responsibility to make sure that it is administered in a sense fairly and equitably in the life of the congregation based on the work of forgiveness for the penitent and withholding the sins of the impenitent. Uh, also, too, another point to point out here, I think, is that also the public reading of God's Word is where the pastor serves the people in the Declaration of Forgiveness, because God's Word is full of the Declaration of Forgiveness, the call to repentance, instruction for daily life. And in our 20th century, 21st century, it has become very commonplace for the pastor not to be the one to read the Scriptures 
And I would encourage hearers and listeners to consider that in the context of pastoral care of the congregation, we're not asking about who gets to do this, who gets to do that, because remember, the divine service is foremost Christ's divine service to his people. You get to partake, not by being a volunteer in the service, but rather you get to partake as being a beneficiary in the divine service. What wonderful reality to have God, uh, to have Christ proclaim his word to you, that you can just sit and absorb it and take it all in, and we're not spending our time saying, oh, look how well Susie pronounced Chorazin and Bethsaida, or how well, you know, John pronounced Beelzebul. Uh, that's not, you know, that's not the point of the readings. It's not a point to say, look at our act of participation, but rather the point of the readings is to receive Christ's own word and to receive God's word. Uh, and this is not just my spin on this. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Now notice, if we were to try and interpret that public reading as being the preaching, then the exhortation and teaching phrase would not come after it. But no, Paul says to Timothy, to the pastor, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And then, so that we can't generically apply this to just all Christians being a part of this public reading that is to be done, Paul goes on and says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. There's the whole image of the rite of ordination or installation. And that's why and I should have led with these verses, in the verses up above, Paul's telling the pastor, command and teach these things. So we can't, in the verses that surround this verse 13, say that Paul is giving instruction to Timothy, and then all of a sudden in verse 13, when he talks about the public reading of Scripture, that's just sort of a generic thing for all people. But rather, this is a comfort for the Christian to know that God even wants his word just to be read to the people. Think of it this way. Think of the image of bride and groom again. If a bride were to be told by her new husband at her wedding reception, if the husband were to say, I want to read something that I wrote for you. I wrote it especially for you, and I worked really hard on it, and I want to read it to you as my gift to you. And what bride would say, no, I want to read it to you or to everybody else gathered there? Well, that would sort of kill the moment, wouldn't it? And yet this is exactly what Christ is doing for his church. He's saying, I wrote this for you, and I fulfilled it for you. It is finished, and now here is my word to you. And so in the reading of the word, uh, and I think we would do well even to every now and then put down the insert that so many of our, our congregations now have so that we can read along, right? The readings are, are in the bulletin, or maybe you got pew Bibles, and those are very helpful to read along most times, right? Uh, we, we learn better when we not just listen, but also when we read along. But every now and then, just put it down and listen. Listen to what we refer to as the viva vox Jesu, the living voice of Jesus, and know that this is Christ reading to you, even if through a mouthpiece. Okay, so you've got the pastor caring for the congregation through preaching, through being the steward of the mysteries, through the public reading of God's word, in individual pastoral care, in all of these things, in preaching, teaching, even care at the bedside. This is Christ caring for you through the one that the congregation has called into its midst by God's authority and said, This man will carry out the office. The office is bigger than that man, 
And yet he is, a, if you will, the incarnate office holder, just as the president, the office of the presidency is bigger than an individual president. And yet that person who fills that office for that time is the incarnate president. And so this pastor carries out Christ's promises to the people and has authority to do so, but then also has accountability to Christ. And so that question of clergy versus laity, clergy versus elders, who's in charge here, it really begins with a very faulty premise, that authority means that that person is in the driver's seat. But we should always remember when we read about the office of the keys, that this is the authority that Christ has given to his church through the designated office of the ministry that he's established to be a bondservant of him, and to care for his dear, precious people who are the beneficiaries of his divine service. I think a great summary for our episode here today is what you just said there right towards the end that you said, this is Christ speaking to his church, even if through a mouthpiece. And I just might add to that, his ordained, his decreed and appointed mouthpiece as the one given to his church to speak to you. That's what we're talking about when it comes to the pastoral office, and it's for the good of the church and this gift that Christ gives to his church, all centered on the forgiveness of sins. Just beautiful catechesis for us today. We're right up against time. So much more that we could say as always, but we look forward to picking up the conversation next week as we continue to progress forward and get into some of this discussion that we began already today as we'll see it play out in the sacrament of the altar and then just that beautiful gift that Christ gives to his church there. So that's what we'll pick up next week as we continue our series here, The Catechized Life, with our catechist, Pastor Mark Festel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and thank you so much, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.